If you don't know, this past year I have come to depend on insurance in all new ways. Uh, my two children, 18 and 19 year olds, uh, have had four accidents inside 12 months. And so I've become acquainted with the process of uh, dealing with insurance agents and uh, the uh, sometimes the not so pleasant experience of dealing with adjusters. That said, uh, while uh, it's been a challenge for my wife and I, I, I'm here to confess today that my parents had it worse. Uh, I was a horrible driver and apparently I have discipled that into my son at least. And the demonstration of this would be, much to your shock, you'll find out that this morning I will confess that when I was a 16-year-old I hit a pedestrian with my car. And it's bad. Uh, uh, I would love to report that this individual uh, uh, wasn't injured in any way, but he was in fact an older gentleman who was paralyzed for the rest of his existence. It was a really awful experience, I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I had my license for about three weeks, so welcome to teen years for my parents. And I slammed on the brakes because I thought he was telling me to, you know, to go on. He was waving with his arms, and the two young women in the car with me seemed to say the same thing. And then he stepped in front of the car, and I slammed on the brakes, and he flopped up onto the hood. And, and then he rolled off onto the street, and then I jumped out of the car. You know, in my horror, he was... Um, bleeding out of the corner of his mouth and if you've ever seen a movie that usually means somebody's dead and so I absolutely left my senses I mean I really at that moment discovered what it means to go out of your gourd I, I lost like consciousness almost and I fell to my knees in the median of this six-lane highway and and quickly prayed and then I stood up and I took my shirt off and started waving it around traffic. I mean, seriously, I lost my mind. And I was so scared. Well, the worst part of this experience was the year that followed where our family was sued because of this silly 16-year-old. And uh, my parents very kindly shielded me from most of this. And then later in the year, they told me I had to give a deposition. And... The, the good news, as far as our family was concerned, but the really sad reality was, is that our insurance company and their attorneys found out that this was the third time that this old man had walked out in front of a car. And so our family wasn't held liable, and my driving record wasn't uh, tainted with uh, a homicide, effectively. And at the same time, though, um, we sadly had to grieve the notion that somebody would actually be so desperate in life that this is the means by which they would try to provide for themselves. Uh, insurance agents were there to protect me. Companies in their insurance companies in particular are designed to be advocates for you and plead your case and protect your standing and in, at their best moment that's what's going on with them. You know, at their worst moments we can talk about it but at their best moments what's happening is, is that advocates Insurance advocates are there to protect your and my interests. I, I'm reminded of a verse of scripture from 1 John 2, 1, where the apostle writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. See, the, the testimony of scripture is that Jesus is in fact there, not just to rescue you, but in a permanent state, is there to advocate for you and for me. This is a beautiful truth because previous to Jesus' coming, which theologians refer to as the incarnation, 
that God, eternity, stepped into time. And that now we have, whereas before God was perceived as far off, now we see that he is Emmanuel, God with us. That he's acquainted with our sufferings. And this is a particular value to a people who are persecuted. It's a particular value to a people who are struggling and suffering. And this is where the writer of Hebrews is going with today's passages. We obviously are going through the book of Hebrews as a series, and one of the things that the writer of Hebrews has done is call the Hebrews to obedience, radical obedience in the face of persecution. Their families, their culture was telling them what you believe is sort of goofy. Uh, Some of them were being cast out, and I watched an interview this past week uh, with this family from the Sudan who has not only had their sister... Uh, who is going to be executed, scheduled to be executed by Sudan for her conversion to Christianity, but her family is disowning her. Her brother was on TV this week saying she should die if she's going to convert to Christianity. I mean, this is her blood brother. This is a common experience in the first century, the people that were changing their religious beliefs, Jews who were converting to Christianity were being told, we're going we're to cast you out. You're no longer going to be a part of this. And under that pressure, they were being challenged to compromise sort of what they believed, to sort of kind of synchronize what Christianity was with other things and compromise on little facets of the gospel to get along with all everybody else. And the apostle comes in in the book of Hebrews and says, no, I'm calling you to obedience. But at the same time, now he's saying, okay, we've, we've kind of made it clear. The expectation is that you'd follow Jesus. But I want to then help you to understand that while Jesus is expecting obedience, he sympathizes and empathizes that he knows what it feels like to feel the pressure you're feeling. That it's imperative to know that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords isn't just this tyrant who's up there demanding your obedience, but he's somebody who is acquainted with how you actually feel. We are reminded by the Holy Spirit through this text that the struggling believer can find great comfort and that the high priest, Jesus, is one of compassion towards those, according to verse 2 of chapter 5 of Hebrews, and I quote, those who are ignorant and going astray. If you've ever felt yourself a little bit prone towards going astray, which would be all of you if you were honest. If you've ever felt like, gosh, you just really don't get what other people talk about and they have this joy of their Christian faith and you're like, I'm sort of kind of like clueless about what that's about. You might find yourself at times thinking God would be impatient with you because of where you are, because of how you feel like you're not measuring up to other people. The text today is designed to encourage you and I, don't be that way understand that the the creator of the universe is tender and patient towards you. And and it's critical for us to understand that in all of its facets because if we ever adopt the mentality that God is impatient with us, what will happen is it will start to show itself in the way we deal with each other. Like abused children inevitably become abusers. People who think God is impatient and awful and a tyrant tend to to be that way towards others, even their blood relatives. 
Before we can actually dive into two things I want to share with you this morning, I, I, I want to take the middle portion of our text today in Hebrews chapter 5 and explain the high priest because uh, for you to get the images that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, you're going to have to actually uh, understand the, the role of the high priest in the Bible. And uh, in, he, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, this is what the description of the high priest in the Jewish world, this is what would be said of them. Every high priest is chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices of si for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on for himself, but when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as he says in another place, you're forever, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I won't talk about Melchizedek today, that's going to be Brooks's responsibility in a couple weeks when he preaches. But I'll say this, the high priest was the one who once a year on the day of atonement would take the blood sacrifices that the people had provided. He would offer sacrifices in this outer court area where everybody was. And then he would go into the inner room. Uh, I'm sorry, into the inner court. And then to the most holy place. So there were three places he would go. And this annual celebration was a reflection on how God was atoning for the sins of the people. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is referencing because he's wanting this group of Hebrew Christians to get the gravity of what has taken place with Jesus. He's wanting them to see, we have been celebrating Yom Kippur. We have been every year coming together and seeing the high priest do this. And this is a pattern of what Jesus has actually done for us. And yet he is not a priest in the sense that a lot of us have thought of a priest. When I think of priests, because I was raised Roman Catholic, I think of people in the, in the, in the ceremonial almost garb. I, I think of a kind of a distance, almost a, an otherness about this type of person, this type of figure. You know, when you see the, the Pope ride around in the Pope mobile, you know, he's, he's, it's not like you're ever going to get close to him. And so you kind of have this sense that if, you know, you're talking about the high priest of Israel, that was sort of kind of what people would have had in their minds. And so he is, the writer of Hebrews, going to communicate to all of us, all of us who are struggling, struggling with sin, all of us who are struggling, struggling with being persecuted or feeling ostracized because of our belief systems, either by family or by friends or by co-workers. He's going to speak to all of us and say, let me give you a, a dimension of Jesus and show you why he's the perfect high priest. So a couple things I, I, I want to share with you about Jesus who the writer of Hebrews is going to call our high priest. And this is not the last time he's going to describe this. This is going to meet itself out over the next three weeks. Variations on this beautiful image. And it would have meant a ton to those who were completely immersed in Jewish culture. The first thing I would like to encourage you with today is really that because Jesus is sympathetic, because he's sympathetic, he's able to encourage you. Let's read the passage real quick here from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The language is very specific here. He passed through. This is Jesus passing through, uh, through the heavens here, through our skies, through the eternal, or through the, the celestial stars, and then into heaven itself. There's this idea that just like the high priest went from the outer court inside and then into the inner sanctum, this is what Jesus has done. He has passed through the outer court and into the holy place and then the most holy place. And the resurrection of Jesus, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus should serve to reaffirm our faith and inspire our boldness and inspire our courage. Jesus, the Son of God. Now, it's important here, too, to recognize that these two terms, Jesus, the Son of God, are really another reference to his dual nature. Jesus would be the humanity of Christ, the Son of God, the divinity of Christ. This entire passage is really one more exposition of the, reality, the doctrinal reality of the dual nature of Christ. And the significance of that is, is that he can, on one hand, be perfect, a sacrifice for us that is perfect, because by his divine nature... He's sufficient to pay for all of our sins and that he hasn't been stained in any way, brought into this world with a nature like ours where he's like prone to doing things wrong. But in his humanity, he's able to sympathize with us. So you see the writer of Hebrews saying it's, it's, it's critical that we get both components of the nature of Christ, his divinity and his humanity. In his humanity, we're told in verse 15, in every way... He was tempted as we are, and yet without sin in every respect. And, and I would say, he was really tempted, and he really was tempted. So there are really two things to contemplate. Not only was Jesus somebody who experienced temptation, but it was tempting to him. And I know there are a lot of times you can think, because you see his divinity as part of his nature, and you think, well, he really didn't experience the kind of suffering we're experiencing, or he really wasn't, he really didn't find himself finding sin appealing in any way. And Jesus is saying, if you'll read in Matthew 4, his experience in his encounter with Satan, that Jesus actually really was tempted. And yet he resisted this. See, for us, we can find comfort in the fact that Jesus knows how he feels. The Greek perfect tense of the has been tempted phrase implies that Christ, the exalted one, the one who now is in heaven, carries with him his earthly references to the, his experience of resisting sin. He continues to know now what it was like to be tested just as we are. And this is, a, this is, again, a piece of Christian theology that I have, for a number of reasons, over the course of my life, had a difficult time getting my head around. And, and maybe this is new to you as well. In his pre-incarnation state, we believe that Jesus existed eternally with the Father. John chapter 1 talks about it at length. Through Jesus, all things have been created, according to John 1, and it has been the testimony of the church since the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, that through Jesus, all things were made. So he himself wasn't created. He was a byproduct. He was begotten of the Father. He was eternally coexisted with the Father and the Spirit. 
And yet he was incarnated into a physical human form. And then after his resurrection, for some reason or other, I had in my head for the longest time that he kind of reverted back to his pre-incarnation state. But Jesus is permanently the God-man. He is permanently, when you see him at the right hand of the Father, like Stephen when he was executed in the book of Acts, you'll say, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. He remains God by nature, yet contained in his perfected human body. He still, to this day, identifies with us in his humanity. He still identifies because while at the right hand of the Father, and one in being with him and the Spirit, he intercedes for us now, and for eternity will remain the, the perfect God-man. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 encourage us with this thought. We read through this a couple of weeks ago. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. See, it's this ability to connect with us that should encourage us. It should help us to strive for greater obedience to him. Verse 16 tells us that we should with confidence come before him. Other translations say, come boldly to his throne of grace. And I think about that when I think about how difficult it is to get close to people who are highly celebrated in culture, whether it be your favorite movie star or whether it be your favorite a politician, uh, or whether it be your favorite anything, sometimes the higher up on the food chain they go culturally, the more difficult it is to access them. I, I think of this picture I, of John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office. You can find it online if you'd like. And his children are playing in there, and they're climbing under the Resolute Desk, which is this famous desk that was made for the Oval Office by the timbers of a, a, a British ship that was captured and this resolute desk is like the sign of presidential power and authority the president sits behind this thing and you see in this picture his little kids playing underneath it and I think that's the picture that we're supposed to have in our heads that while our father is and our, and, and our savior Jesus has been granted all authority on heaven and on earth the, he, the writer of Hebrews wants you and I to understand that because of his humanity, because of his identifying with this, he wants us, because he's never sinned, he wants us to boldly come into his presence. He doesn't want us to kind of cower in like we're supposed to be afraid of him because we're identified with him. He's saying, in your time of need, come in and, and you can get grace. I know that as a 16-year-old, when I hit a pedestrian <laughs> three weeks after I had my driver's license, the last phone call in the world I want to make is to my dad. Uh, and, and, you know, so, I mean, I, I am horrified that I've uh, hurt someone, and then now, worse, on top of that, I've got to call my dad. And I love my father, but got to understand, my dad is type A. If you think I'm, like, intense, trust me. My dad is me on steroids. He is emotionally, he's an intense cat, all right? And, 
and empathy and sympathy weren't words I would have up to the age of 16 like associated with my father who is strong and an amazing provider and, and a model to me in, in a lot of ways but I gotta tell you man making that phone call scared me more than anything I could have been arrested and I would have been less frightened than making the phone call to my dad I was wonderfully surprised when his first words were are you okay that changed things for me and my dad. And, you know, there was a moment there where I was scared and then I realized he was first concerned about my safety. And somehow or another, my dad was able to say, I know what he's going through. And you know how he knew that? Because when he was a teenager, he got in a car accident with his brother and almost killed them both. So my dad could actually identify with me. And Jesus is calling you and I, listen, you don't have to be afraid to come to him. Matt Chandler, who's the president of our network of churches, always says, you get the gospel when you flee to God when you've blown it, not run from him. What the gospel has freed you to do is that you know you're not going to be condemned for your sin, and so you don't have to hide it anymore. You don't have to pretend. You can come right into the throne room of God and say, I've blown it. I'm sorry and receive mercy and grace in your time of need. And because Jesus is sympathetic, it's supposed to encourage you and I. The second passage, the second section of this passage is tied together by this uh, section in Hebrews 5, 1 through 6 that we read previously. Uh, that serves as a bridge between the, the encouragement that he can sympathize and encourage us and a declaration and an explanation of exactly how he has made us acceptable to the Father. And so I'll say this, but because he's sympathetic, he's able to encourage you, but because he's perfect, he's able to represent you. It's critical. In this passage, you're seeing both the humanity of Jesus, the dual nature of Christ. He is sympathetic. But then you're also saying the divinity of Christ. He's perfect. He's completely satisfied the requirements needed to go into the Oval Office of God, if you will. He has made you a member of his family. He has done the work. He didn't say, come to me, try real hard to get in my family, and if you do it right, maybe I'll let you in. He's saying, if you come to me humbly, you are part of the family. Because he's perfect, he then represents you. Like the insurance company represented me and continues to represent me daily. Because he's perfect, he's able to represent us. Verses 7 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, meaning when he was on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In verse 7, we see an example of Jesus being somebody who pleads passionately with the Father. And, and it's possibly referencing what we know from the Gospels, Jesus' time where he was being challenged to obedience, going to the cross to pay for our sins, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, cried and, and cried out for mercy and help and, and the grace he received was the strength of God's presence to endure the cross, to be able to walk the hill with the cross strapped to him and then be crucified for us. He found in that moment 
the mercy and the strength he needed to continue on through what must have obviously been the worst thing anybody could have ever gone through. So whatever struggles you and I have, Jesus has been there, he's done that, and he's actually given us a pattern for how we can plead for mercy and grace in this time. In verse 8, we're told that he learned obedience. I want to be clear about something in this regard because this is in the same way that Jesus allowed himself to become human so that he could experience our temptations. As a child, he had to learn things just like us. He had to develop capacities to understand. Jesus submitted to a growth process in this life to confirm for us his humanity so that we can realize we're not dealing with an angry tyrant. That's what sets us apart from, and forgive me if you come from this perspective, but that's what sets us apart from a, from a religious system like Islam where God is distant and angry and volatile and judgmental and harsh. In Jesus, we've seen whatever justice needed to be satisfied by God, we see that already taking place, which enables his children to be able to respond even to others with mercy and grace in their times of need. Jesus became obedient he obeyed every stroke of the law. He obeyed the Father's will so that he could earn our righteousness and give to us his fulfillment of the law. So his obedience, his willingness to be human and walk through every step as we are and yet never blow it. This, at the moment of truth, he gives as a gift to his children so that we stand before the Father not because of our own goodness but because of the righteousness of Christ. You and I now are presented, represented by Jesus. When you think about going to court and unfortunately I've been a couple times. I, you know, if you go by yourself and I've got to go to traffic court this summer. Confession! Um, I'm not bringing a lawyer with me. It's just me and this judge and the cop and I'm like, oh boy. I mean, I don't have anybody to represent me. I've just, it's almost an overwhelming sort of experience. When you go before the throne of God, you might say, I feel a little bit overwhelmed here. And you probably should, naturally, because you and I are unholy. He's perfect in every way. But standing between you and the Father's holiness is this advocate who is, like, shilling for you, protecting you, making your needs known. And because you, if you're a believer, expressed faith in Christ, you have every confidence to know that you come to the Father and all he sees is Christ. The reason you're able to go into the throne room of God and, and effectively play and be there with your Father is because Jesus has cleansed you already. He's made you holy In verse 9, it says that salvation is he became, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And what this says is not you get to be saved if you obey Jesus. It says you're, and he, you're eternally rescued now and made part of his family, and it is evidenced by the fact that you desire to obey him. See, if you and I aren't in the presence of Jesus, we're not going to want to obey him. 
And so he's made it possible for us to just enjoy his presence. And, and then we find the sense that, you know what, I've done something that displeases you. I'm going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to turn from that behavior and follow you. And then there are going to be times where you blow it again. And because he can sympathize with you and he is patient with you, he's able to welcome you into his throne room to receive grace. In Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, it says this about the other priests. The former priests were many in numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I do think it begs the question, are we able to be that gracious to others? If the characteristic of your life is harshness, if the characteristic of your life is a self-righteousness, a demandingness of others, that's probably a really good indicator that you don't see yourself as needy or yet you have not grasped the reality that as believers we've been made holy in God's sight. We're, that we're loved by God right now. I have to tell you that this is something that characterized my life and probably to some degree still does. It's something I continue to work through like everybody else. But I've been a Christian 30 years and for the better stretch of that, my wife, my kids, my friends would probably tell you that I was a little angry. And a lot of that anger was because I, I really genuinely felt like I was having to control every little facet of my life. And in particular, I felt out of control with regards to whether or not I could be at rest with Jesus. And somehow or another, through life circumstances, through difficulties, even in my case, through some serious suffering, something changed in me. Something I started to see my brokenness and I started to see how Jesus was more merciful than I could have ever imagined. And it's changed in me the ability I have to even be kind to others who are struggling. See, all of us are called to imitate the patience of Jesus, the, the, the kindness of Jesus. Like a high priest, it says in verse 2, that we're able to have compassion with those who are going astray. It's easier to do when you see yourself as one of those who's prone to going astray. The beauty is that you don't have to be afraid of God if that's a reality for you. You just have to continue to come into the throne room, confess your wrongs, and walk away with the strength of knowing that He's forgiven you, and you, you continue on in, in, in a desire to please Him. Brooks sent me a passage from a devotional that we both share from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, and he's, he's British, so if you're wondering why he talks like Yoda from Star Wars, that's why. One cheering word, poor lost sinner, for thee. You think you must not come to God because you are vile? Now, there is not a saint living on earth but has been made to feel that he is vile. If Job and Isaiah and Paul we're all obliged to say, I am vile. O poor sinner, will thou be ashamed to join in the same confession? If divine grace does not eradicate all sin from the believer, how dost thou hope to do it thyself? 
And if God loves his people while they are yet vile, does thou think thy vileness will prevent his loving thee? Believe on Jesus, thou outcast of the world's society. Jesus calls thee and such as thou art. We can boldly come to his throne because he is perfect and made us acceptable to the Father. We can know emotionally that he is sympathetic towards us because of his humanity, because of his willingness to share in our experiences. We are part of his family and that gives us access. I have an iPhone, many of you do as well, and one of the things I've discovered over the last year is this feature called Do Not Disturb. Um, because of the nature of like technology now, I don't have a home phone, and so you know, if I'm not careful, um, I can like constantly have people like calling me, and I don't really want that all the time, especially like, like from midnight to six or seven in the morning. I kind of like to be uninterrupted. But because I don't have a home phone, it's not like if my kids were ever in a car accident, and boy, that's never happened. Um, and no, if anybody needs to be accessed between midnight and 6 a.m., it's yours truly. And so the way I can do that now is through the Do Not Disturb feature. And you may see on the Do Not Disturb feature that there is a way to allow people who are on your favorites list to break through the Do Not Disturb. And so if somebody is on your favorites list on your iPhone and you have your Do Not Disturb on, they plow right on through that firewall and can wake you up. Now, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but none of you are on this list. <laughs> the people on my list are my family, my two kids who give me heart attacks, and obviously my wife, she's sleeping next to me, so it wouldn't be necessary for her to be on that list. I have a brother-in-law who lives in La Cunada. My sister lives in La Cunada. People that are my family, I, my parents, I want them to be able to get a hold of me. You may have felt it from time to time like Jesus was a little inaccessible. And this, for a Hebrew Christian, would have been a, a, a barrier because they were told their whole life that God is he's out there. He's eternal. And you are mortal. And they were in a Hellenistic Greek world, which in many places were telling them that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. So if you're in the flesh, if you're in humanity, you're a mess and you need to get rid of that flesh and beat yourself if necessary. And Jesus come to say, I made you. So I love humanity. And in his humanity, he can sympathize with you and I, but in his divinity... He has opened a door for you and I to access the Father in a way that perhaps we've never felt comfortable doing. Let me put it this way. You're on God's favorites list. There, there's nothing, there's no barrier between you and Him. The old gospel song is, call Him up. Tell Him what you want. He's right there on the phone. He's, he's that accessible. You are his children. He loves you. So let us pray to our Father. Lord, today we're humbled by the reality that you love us. That we are your children because of what Jesus has done. We're going to need your help. We're going to need your grace 
to get that so that we will be excited about our faith. Because for those of us who were taught incorrectly our whole life that we had to get it all together before you'd accept us, or just our nature that wants to be proud and find our being okay in your presence because of our goodness instead of your kindness, we're going to need your grace to help us overcome that so we can really enjoy what it means to be followers of Jesus, made acceptable to you by your grace. And I pray today that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd open eyes and hearts that even during this time of reflection and response to the gospel, this time of communion, that you'd be breaking into souls and giving them the freedom to come to you in ways they've never come before and confess things that they've been clinging to because they, for some reason or other, thought they had to hide it and but find freedom and forgiveness and grace and mercy. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.